So, we paid for our plane ticket, traveled by train, and now we're here. Ah, the home of Dracula. I'm, I'll admit, I'm a little less scared, but I'm still scared for an entirely different reason. Alright, so we just have to keep a lookout for Oscar's paw prints, because he went this way with it. Or as okay. much paw prints as a ghost can put down. Oh, did you get a hold of Simon to ask him to join us? Yeah, I think he got here early, based on what I'm hearing from within the castle itself. That's fair. Um, so maybe we'll have an easier time walking through the castle, but that still doesn't change what I'm afraid of. What are you afraid of? Jump physics. Oh, yeah. You okay? I'm okay. Good evening, good whatever time of day it is. Welcome once again to Gaming Street Irregulars. My name is James Irish. I'm joined by descendant of the Belnades clan, Chrissy Harding. Hello, everybody. <laughs> and as you have surmised, we are talking about Castlevania today. Oh, Castlevania. And there are myriad ways we can take this discussion, ranging from disappointing Game Boy games to the wildly experimental Metroidvania era to the 3D games on the N64 and the PlayStation 2, which have checkered histories, shall we say? For more or less. And then there was that period of time when Castlevania migrated from being a Nintendo game over to... um several other consoles continuing the story and the pachinko games the what games wait what yes pachinko games there was pachinko wow they they just turn everything into a gambling game nowadays don't they they sure do but the best place to start with castlevania is the very beginning and that's all the way in 1986 Oh, yes, October of 1986, to be precise. How appropriate, <laughs> considering. And Game. we're going to be referencing another horror-themed franchise a good bit during the course of this episode, because there's really no extracting Castlevania from the influence it drew from Capcom's Ghosts and Goblins. Indeed. Although I will say the jump mechanics in Ghosts and Goblins is like slightly better. Yeah, as I discovered myself Yeah, a second ago. Thanks for the rope, by the way. Yeah, no problem. Always, always, I've learned this much. There's two things you always need when you travel. A towel and rope. We will start talking about the original Famicom Disk System release and its NES counterpart right after this break.
games we're going to be discussing that are Castlevania games anyway is that in Japan, they all have the exact same title, Akumajo Dracula. They're all called different things here in the States. The NES one is just plain old Castlevania. Mm-hmm. The MSX one, briefly released in Europe, was Vampire Killer. Indeed. The arcade version is Haunted Castle. The Super NES version is Super Castlevania 4. And the Sharp X6800 one, which would be re-released on the PlayStation and is known on that form as Castlevania Chronicles. Yeah. And the interesting thing with Castlevania is, well, believe it or not, with Vampire Killer, those were actually developed as two separate games, but they used the same characters, mm-hmm. which was interesting because they were both developed same time, same production team, same everything, same characters, same setting, but they, were con- they are technically considered two separate games, according That's to the right. development team. With very different mechanics, which we'll get into in a moment. Mm-hmm. But regarding that Famicom Disk System original, it really feels like an attempt to make a Ghost and Goblins game more suited for a console experience. Well, and it's interesting because both, well, yeah, I agree and disagree. Um, they're both in scary settings, obviously by two totally different developing companies. Both have different, well, different yet the same antagonists at the end. The only difference between, to me, between the two is Castlevania does not make you run through it a second time. Oh, thank God for that. Because in, in both Ghosts and Goblins, your end, what is it, the end, technically the end boss is the devil. In this case, they call it Dracula, and in that case, I forgot what they call it in, in Ghosts and Goblins. Sorry, guys. If I recall correctly, it was Lucifer, but uh, you keep talking and I'll pull it up. There we go. So the interesting thing, though, with the Dracula that's in Castlevania, we don't really discover Dracula's origins. They kind of kept it to the Dracula origins that we all know from, you know, Bela Lugoso's portrayal of him and pop culture. I mean, that's where most of us pull that from. But to give you an idea, in the Castlevania timeline, Dracula actually was a was the best friend to a knight by the name of Leon Belmont. And his original name was Matthias. Matthias. And Matthias lost his fiance. His fiance died. And was very heartbroken. And it led him down a dark past where he was trying to kind of resurrect her. But this is kind of all hidden in the game uh, Castlevania Lament of Innocence. This is where they explore that whole story. Eventually, Leon and Matthias, Leon realizes that Matthias is the actual vampire. They fight. Matthias runs away and becomes, changes his name to Dracula. So that's where the Dracula and Castlevania come from. It is actually, was a good friend and ally to the Belmont clan. And several centuries pass. When we come to Castlevania, which is set in 1691, with Simon Belmont as the protagonist, with the whip, which Leon actually infuses with the spirit, and it is considered to be the, the whip that everybody uses to kill Dracula. So there's a little bit of a quick history of, of the Belmont clan. Excellent. Um, and actually, interestingly enough, originally, Simon's character was supposed to be named Peter Dante, a play on Dante's Inferno. 
Taking it back to Ghosts and Goblins for a moment, I just mm-hmm. confirmed the name of the end boss is Aseroth. Ooh. Which actually is the name of a very famous warlock in certain cultures. Okay. Not to be accused with Azatoth from Lovecraftian. Similar, yeah. but not the same. Yeah, we, we, we dealt with that last time. Yeah. One, one doesn't give a crap about you. The other one just kidnaps princesses. Total difference between the two. So, for me, one of the big areas where Castlevania differs from Ghosts and Goblins is sub-weapons. In Ghosts and Goblins, when you pick up a new weapon, that's it. That's your weapon. In Castlevania, you've always got that whip. And whatever sub-weapon you pick up will replace the other sub-weapons, but they complement the whip. Mm -hmm. And these are things from throwing knives to axes, to vials of holy water, to a magical watch that can actually briefly freeze enemies, to sacred crosses that pretty much work as boomerangs. Yeah, I tried explaining that once when I was when this game came out and I was in paro- kind of in parochial school and I was they were telling us how, you know, crosses and the power. I'm like, yeah, and you could throw them at things and it comes back. And they looked at me and I'm like, oh, wait, I probably shouldn't have said that. I got in so much trouble <laughs> in parochial school. Oh, dear. <laughs> Oh, dear. It took a long time to realize, nope, they really don't come back. <laughs> and the thing is, though, with these weapons, you can really only carry one sub-weapon at a time. And like you said, it does work with the whip. And if you die, unfortunately, you lose it. Yeah. And Castlevania is, if you're not used to the mechanics, it's very much a pick-up-and-die game. Oh, yeah. It is definitely At least after you get die. past the first level. Because the first level is, it eases you in, thankfully. Thank God. Also, the other cool thing is you can actually pick up upgrades to the whip, and you do not lose those. Yes, and that's that's a very, very key part of what makes that first set of stages so brilliant, is that it eases you in to how the whip works. Because there's a delay, just like when you would be using a whip in real life. you got to wind it up so you can crack it at the enemy mm-hmm. so picking up the power-ups out outside the castle where there's no enemy gets you used to that whip's timing oh yeah so you can get used to how you to hit it in order to hit your enemies and your first good. enemies are not really big threats just zombies that shamble around in one direction you know there's some panthers that are a little quick but don't take many hits you got a few bats Sorry, Sunset Slade. Damn you, bats. Yeah. And, you know, the, there's the, the Fishmen. And the infamous Nintendo Recoil. Oh, yes. That I consider an enemy. I consider that an enemy. That, yes, you will be dealing with that. And that will become more prominent when you go into the second stage. And the difficulty starts to ramp up. Where that recoil combines with one of the game's most notorious enemies... The Medusa heads. Oh my god, yes. I first time I saw them, I'm like, what are you doing? Aren't you supposed to be in Kid Icarus? Go back to your own game. Now this, this was an interesting choice, importing Medusa, a, a Greek mythological figure, into uh, Transylvanian horror slash classic movie monster stuff. But it wasn't necessarily unprecedented, for one. Medusa was in the popular zeitgeist thanks to Clash of the Titans a few years Mm -hmm. earlier. 
and another, there's some precedent for mixing and matching monster mythologies. C.S. Lewis included fiends like minotaurs and centaurs in the Chronicles of Narnia, which got him a little criticism back in his day. If his story, he can do what he wants. Yes, but you know, I guess people lacked that kind of imagination back then. No, people just always find something to complain about. That too. Mm-hmm. And also, let, let's not forget the myriad mix-and-match m- monsters in your typical Dungeons & Dragons bestiary. Indeed. I like the fact, the nice thing about really Castlevania is it is really, it is an homage to the Universal Monster movies. You have werewolves, you have ghosts, you have smaller vampires in a sense, you have witches, you have Frankenstein's monster as a boss. Mm-hmm. And the Grim Reaper, who is who I will tell you, the Grim Reaper is a running theme throughout all of the Castlevania games. Every almost every single game has him in there somewhere, starting some shit. Yeah, he's especially notorious for taking your gear in Symphony of the Night. Oh, but here yeah. he's just one of the more difficult bosses. Mm-hmm. And it's an odd thing in in hindsight because uh, the concept of the Grim Reaper as an evil being is a lot more recent than we think. No, death was death was always considered the Grim Reaper. Um, we could I could really go into this one too. This is the sad part. The Grim Reaper itself is actually in a in a culmination over time of different influences from different cultures and the representation of death. The Grim Reaper itself as an evil personification of death is really, you're right, it is a very recent connotation, mostly because with recent fantasy novels and everything that they they try to give death some sort of humanization. Now, it's not completely out of the question, as in Greek mythology, Hades is the king of the underworld. And you did not talk about Hades as a living Greek. Because the fear was, by speaking his name, Hades would come and kill, would take your soul. And you can check out more of my TED Talk in another time. Absolutely. I also recommend, if you do want to learn a bit more of the history of the Grim Reaper, there is a web series called Monstrum for PBS. The, ta- the channel itself is called Storied. And the woman who does it, she is a folklorist. Zombies was actually what she did a lot of her folklore on, but she talks about different stuff. And one of the ones she talks about is the Grim Reaper and the evolution of the Grim Reaper in our culture. She also does vampires too, which is interesting. As one does. So let's let's give credit where credit is due for this game, though. Hitoshi Yakamatsu actually is the director of Castlevania. Um, he is a big fan of cinema. And so he kind of approached the game as a, from like a director's point of view, like someone who is like someone who's filming a movie. And it's interesting because everything about Castlevania, from the visuals to the music, were made by people who can, consciously wanted to do something cinematic. They wanted to make a video game that felt like you were in a movie. You can see it with the film reel iconography at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And at the end... You get some uh, credits, I put in quotation marks, that credit the cast as Dracula being portrayed by Christopher B. <laughs> and Death, Bello Lugosi. Frankenstein, Boris Karloffis. Yes, they do. Yeah, he gives credit back to the original Universal uh, movie monsters and the people who portrayed them. 
portrayed them. The designer of the game, Akihiko Nagata, uh, was the one who did a lot of the character designs and kind of the start, like the concept art to it. But the actual artist, uh, Nori Yasu Toga Kushi, was the actual artist who drew a lot of the artwork for the game that you saw in the manual um, and for the cover box art. And interestingly enough as well, I don't know if you realize this, James, but the original name that you had told us, uh, Akumojo Dracula, actually is translates to Dracula's Satanic Castle. Well, that makes all the sense in the world. So, and the thing is, is um, when Konami's North, uh, Konami of America's uh, senior vice president, Emil Heidekamp, was very uncomfortable with this, so they had to change it to Castlevania. Yeah, and it's understandable he would be uncomfortable with it, because that would have never gotten past Nintendo's censors. More on them later. Oh, but, or even, but what's interesting, though, is... Uh, there was something else going on in America at this time. Both you and I were, were probably six or seven years old at the time, but there was something known as the Satanic Panic. Yeah, that was gripping Dungeons and Dragons. All Anything fantasy-based that had any inkling of magic in it. So for this video game to try to come out with the name Dracula's Satanic Castle would not have flown. Not just from nope. Nintendo, but just in general. And a very interesting history with it, with its development and everything else. It actually didn't come to the United States until 1967 and 1968, obviously North America and Europe, respectively. Uh, you mean 87? 87. Sorry, 1987, 1988. Apparently, my dyslexia is kicking in. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's usually if I try to read things too fast, if I slow myself down, it doesn't buy. It does. I can hide it pretty well, but. The mind is a horrible thing. Yes. So, but as we stated at the beginning yeah. of the episode, mm-hmm. the at, released at the same time as the Famicom Disk System version was the MSX version. And you are correct that it is definitely a very different game. It has the same underpinnings, you know, the same plot elements, the same characters. The same, same cover art. <laughs> and the same general uh, stage progression. But they designed the game to be more in tune with the strengths of the MSX standard. Because the MSX does not natively support scrolling. Mm. So we saw this with Hudson's very unusual interpretation of Super Mario Brothers on the MSX. Mm, That's right. And we see it here where each screen is its own self-contained space but that's not all that's different this game has its own economy where the hearts aren't used to fuel sub weapons but they're the currency for merchants interesting now i actually haven't played this game because well i've never tried msx emulation and it hasn't been brought over to the states in any way shape or form officially by konami well, and I highly doubt Konami will, purely for the fact of the matter is, is we have Castlevania. Yeah. So they probably wouldn't do it. And, and like I said, it's the exact same team worked on this one as worked on Castlevania. It's the ex- almost the exact same team, right down to the producer, the designer, the composers, the artists, the, ga- the, the cover art. 
is literally the cast like what you see as the um the classic castlevania cover art box for north america just flipped it's just mirrored that's all it is basically and it's I've heard Jeremy Parrish describe this as like a funhouse mirror version of Famic of the Disk System slash NES Castlevania. And while it didn't quite work as well as the uh, the one we got here in the States and mm-hmm. you know came out on the Disk System in Japan, it definitely influenced the series because Castlevania 2 would pick up the economy system and some of the other elements therein to its own use. And that would go on within the Metroidvania-style games. Yep. And just the, the ability to buy things and to make that decision of, okay, do I get this or do I get this? Do I get this or do I get this? And that's um, also a decision that crosses over to the sub-weapons. Because mm-hmm. they will replace your whip in the MSX version. Oh, yeah. And you have to be doubly careful because in, in the one we know best, the, that cross-boomerang... It's a fire-and-forget weapon. You can throw it as long as you've got the hearts for it. Yeah, you can let it go as long as you want. Just keep an eye on those hearts. In the MSX version, the boomerang has to be caught each time. Oh, screw that. Yeah. So if you lose it, you're back to the whip. Yeah. But I'd still rather play the MSX version than the arcade version. And I don't mean Versus Castlevania, the one that uh, Konami put out on Nintendo's Versus Unisystem. I mean Mm. Haunted Castle. Oh dear. We talked about this a little bit, I believe, with Linwood when we did our Arcade Memories podcast. Yeah, we we did. And I did a blog entry for this game way back last year. And, oh my god, this is... I think this is when Konami decided to try and out Ghost and Goblins, Ghost and Goblins. Yeah, they could have just left it as it was. Part of the problem was this game did not start development as a Castlevania game. Oh no, it did not. It started um, as a totally separate game. Yeah, I'm not sure what it was originally supposed to be, but what we got made Simon Belmont look like a wimp. There is a sub-boss segment in the very first stage where there's these fragments of a wall flying at you, and you have to either attack them or dodge them precisely, because each one will take half of your life bar. Ugh. Yeah. And this is the largest in-game sprite for Simon Belmont just about ever. He is a big target. God. So that definitely makes things a lot harder. And sub-weapons, good luck finding them. I barely scraped through to beat the boss of the first stage, which is another iteration of Medusa, after, like, so many attempts. And when I got to the second stage, I, I died within seconds. And oh yeah, this game has limited continues. Oh yeah. Oh you oh you th- oh you thought you would have unlimited continues based on the amount of coins you had? Nope. Konami will suck them all away from you. Oh my gosh. I'm like I'm looking at the reviews for this and everyone's like, "Yeah, don't it's literally like this game is the toughest game you'll play. The graphics are gorgeous." But the graphics 
are decent. You know, there, there's some areas where there's some color choices that are um, odd. Well, it's yeah. the soundtrack that's really the best part. Yeah, and actually, and it looks like the soundtrack was composed by uh, Kanichi Matsubora, who was also a staff member of Castlevania's II Simon's Quest. Bloody Tears and the Game Over sound from Simon's Quest makes an appearance in this game. But a lot of the and a lot of the music from this game actually was remixed into later games in the series. For example, the song Cross Your Heart was rearranged for the, the Dracula X Chronicles and is actually included in a bonus track as part of Castlevania Portrait of Ruined. A Lullaby Sent to the Devils, which plays during the high score screen, is used in Castlevania The Adventure Rebirth as a theme that plays during the second stage. The final battle theme was reused in, as the fi- main battle theme in some other games, most notably The um, Adventure Rebirth. Can't Wait Until the Night was combined with Hearts of Fire from Castlevania to form Julius Belmont's theme in Ariane of Sorrow. And the basement melody returns in Castlevania Dawn of Sorrows, played in the Mine of Judgment. The different music was to help set the stage for certain bosses. And from what I can remember of the music of this game, it it worked. <laughs> it did. Like, it was you would you played for honestly you mostly played it just to hear the music, which shouldn't be your main selling point of a game, but it doesn't hurt either. And one other thing I want to mention about this game in, ter- in its relation to Ghosts and Goblins, the introduction is very much inspired from Capcom's game since you're starting having just gotten married and then Dracula swoops in to steal your bride. Mm-hmm. And then you must set off on a quest to find your bride. It's different for Castlevania because... You know, normally Simon Belmont's love life isn't even touched upon. No, this is actually the first time you were even given, like, a girlfriend. You kind of sit there like, wait, wasn't he cursed? Because that's like the whole thing of Simon's Quest 2 was Simon trying to find a cure for the curse that was placed upon, upon him after beating Dracula in the first game. So, like, where does this fall in the whole scheme of things as of the quote-unquote storyline? Like, what the heck? Wow, Castlevania has more uh, continuity errors than Legend of Zelda. And that's saying something. That is saying something. Now, the one last note I want to make about Haunted Castle is mm-hmm. that it is available in two formats right now. You can get it as part of Hamster's Arcade Archives line of releases, or it's included in Konami's Arcade Classics Anniversary Collection, which is an odd fit because... Aside from that one, every game on that collection is a Gradius-style shooter. Yeah, Typhoon, Nemesis, Vulcan, Venture, Life Force, Thundercross, Scrabble, and Twin B. Oh, well, Twin B's, uh, well, Twin B's a little different, but still. Yeah. They're all shooters. Well, Twin B's just fun. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the few shooter games I love. That and Grad- that and um, uh, Par- um, Parodius? No, not Parodius. The one with the with the the hillbilly on the cover playing a banjo. Oh, that not one. See it. The one who you do not see anywhere in the game, and you're still trying to figure out how he got on the cover. Yes, I, I do know which one you're talking about. But it, it just struck me as odd that it wound up with all those shooters since simultaneously released to that collection was a Castlevania collection. 
Oh, that's right. There was there was the Castlevania collection. Yep. Nice solid purchase. Twenty bucks gets you the NES games, the Super NES game, the Genesis game, and Kid Dracula. Really? Not to mention all the international versions. So you can play the original Japanese Castlevania 3, which is a different experience, which we'll discuss at a later date. Indeed. Can't do everything at once. We'll try. Right. We can't. But yeah, this is why I like to say support the re-releases, because they're a good way for companies to gauge whether or not there's still interest in these franchises. Are we ready to move on to Super Castlevania 4? Before we move on to Super Castlevania 4, just to give everyone an idea of how well this game aged, it was actually rated the 22nd best made game on the Nintendo system in Nintendo Power's Top 200 Games in 2006. It was actually also listed as in a different listing by Nintendo Power of the 14th best Nintendo actual NES game. Game, uh, game Informer ranked it as 48th of the best games ever made. Um, noting that its gameplay style did set a standard in the in um, the industry, ING ranked it 19th on their list of best NES games. The second and third Castlevania, by the way, were ranked 25 and 5th respectively. It was praised for its difficulty, gameplay, soundtrack, and its visuals, which at the time was actually pretty cutting edge for the system it was on. If you want an idea. Look at Mario Brothers, which came out as the same, probably about the same time as Castlevania, as well as Legend of Zelda. And Castlevania visuals were much better. And indeed, they, they had to do a lot of work to convey that sense of horror and that atmosphere because, you know, graphical presentation at the time was limited. So they were pushing the envelope as far as they could. But the controls were also an aspect of the horror. You had mm-hmm. to be aware of the danger around you based on, as you so aptly described, the enemy that is your own knockback mechanics. Yeah. The recoil mechanics in this game will, are one of the main reasons why it's a pick up and play game. And you had to keep that in mind when you were on a platform and you had an enemy coming towards you, timing, hitting the enemy. And if you got hit, how much space you actually had before you were knocked off the platform. Retro Gamer called it one of the most endearing video games ever made. ING's Lucas Thomas noted um, in its actual ranking of the Castlevania games the relative realism of Castlevania's weapons versus glowing flowers that let you throw bouncing fireballs. Shots fired, Lucas Thomas. Shots Mm -hmm. fired. You know, and it's interesting because it really was the standard bearer. And I can honestly, and I can actually state from a personal experience, I had a friend of mine who wanted to get the Nintendo Classic, but obviously it sold out. So she got a knockoff version off of online. And her big selling point was it said it had Castlevania in it. Hint, it didn't. Oh, no. 500 games and not one Castlevania. We found a whole bunch of other Japanese games, and I thought it was kind of cool because I'm like, oh, my God, these are Japanese games that were never released here. This is kind of interesting. So for her, when I built my recal box, I made sure I put Castlevania on there for her. Absolutely. (laughs) So she she could play it. You know, along with game series like Contra and Mega Man and Ninja Gaiden, Mm -hmm. those are... Those, are, Those are quintessential third-party Nintendo experiences. Yeah, it was. She just wanted the Nintendo Classic so she could play Castlevania, 
on a Nintendo again. And so when I built my recal box and my outside of my recal box is a knockoff Lego thing that looks like a Nintendo, an NES, you know, I brought it over. And so she got to kind of play Castlevania on a NES, obviously quotation marks around the NES part. Right. So. But it's the thought that's most important. Indeed it was. So. Castlevania had three excellent games on both the NES and the Game Boy, and then when Nintendo made the jump to 16-bit, it was only natural that that Castlevania would make the jump as well with Super Castlevania 4. Yes, and it made the jump really quickly. This was a launch window game in both Japan and North America. Oh, yeah. This was a game where they kind of... And they kind of upped it too. Like they actually really upped the gameplay and the mechanics in this game as well. So it kind of follows the same setting as Castlevania NES. The game takes place in, in, in 1691, Transylvania, where Simon Belmont must once again defeat Dracula. Or for the first time, or however you want to look at it, since this is again a retelling of the exact same story. Indeed. But this game is a little different. In some ways, you get yeah, help. Yeah, it's twice as long. And you get help. This one this one gives you more to do with your whip. Oh, you yes. You, and, and you get a password save system. Coincidentally, there was a save system on the disk system game Wait, but not in Japan. On... And it got lost when it came to the States because... Konami didn't want to pay for battery backup, and they didn't think to incorporate a password system. Once again, we all know my feeling on Konami, for the most part. Mm-hmm. They can kiss my butt. But the other one that I like is um, you had to try to collect, and I think this is kind of funny. So one of the power-ups you can collect is something known as the Morning Star, and that would increase the power and the length of your whip. What's another name for Lucifer? Isn't that Morning Star? It is the Morning Star. I saw what you did there, Konami. I saw. <laughs> so pretty much you had to collect Lucifer's joking name because Lucifer's the one who gave Dracula his ability to come back every hundred years and cause issues. So with this game, you get five lives. And it's game over once you've lost them all. Just as in the original, you can lose all. You can lose a life if, Sam, if Simon's health gauge goes to zero. If you fall into a hole, or if they do not fin- finish the level within the time limit. Oh yeah, by the way, in both these games, you're timed. Yeah. Mercifully, in the, in the original Castlevania, the time limit resets when you reach one of the doors. Thank God. Also, like we said, the health gauge can be restored by either for food items that are dropped from candles or breakable blocks. Or with the magic crystal that you get at the end of beating every boss. I do want to mention that the meat you find in the walls has been affectionately dubbed Brickskit by Jeremy Parrish and his community. I love that pun. That is such a good pun. Oh my god, hats off to Jeremy Parrish. Yes. One of these days we'll get him on the show. One day. What's also interesting too is that you can now send your whip in eight different directions in this game. 
which is a little bit of the same mechanic in Castlevania where you can whip up, you can whip front, back, and down. I don't think you could have done diagonal in Castlevania. I don't think the arrow pad on the controller could do that. Nope. This is the first time. In fact, this is the first time you could whip up, I believe. Oh, okay. thought you could in the other one. No, sorry. That's Kid Icarus where you can shoot your arrows up. Ah, okay. Well, That's similar time could... frames. Kind of similar games. They both ended up on Captain N. What do you want? And we'll briefly I... discuss how Captain N translated Simon Belmont once we discuss all the games. Indeed. You have to have me on when you and Pemi talk about Captain N. We will. I cuz that was I, that was my show when I was when I was younger. Oh my god. But yeah, so it's interesting also with this too, was you were allowed to um, also collect items known as double and triple shots, which allowed you to send, throw any secondary weapons up to three times in a row. Yep, that was present in the original. That was present in the original. There, The watch does a little bit more to stop uh, enemies, and at this point the the dagger can actually be thrown fully across the screen. Kind of became another throw it and forget it. Okay. Of course, you probably didn't get it back. Well, no, this is this is video game mechanics. You probably did get it back. So this game was released in Japan on October 31st of 1991. That was the Japan race. It was then released in here in December of 1991. Wow, October, uh, Halloween release. How appropriate. Very much so. Now, I want to talk about that whip's multidirectional abilities. Mm-hmm. It's, some critics have said that the whip being so versatile renders the sub-weapons a little obsolete in a lot of cases. Well, it, but it, considering it's, it's your main weapon, you you want to have some versatility with it because... Your secondary weapons are only really there as backup weapons. It's when you don't want to use the whip. but Right. But, you know, with being able to use the whip at a diagonal, kind of makes the axe a little pointless. Because the axe's whole thing was uh, was launching it in an arc to get enemies at upward diagonals. Yes and no. I mean, there's still some there's still something to be said for lobbing an axe at somebody. I mean, there's Fair. there's still there's still that like yeah, I can whip you, but I can lob an axe at you, take you out, probably take out the guy behind you, and probably go down and take the guy down on the lower platform. I really don't have the energy to jump down and go after. But at the same time, where Konami really exceeded with this game was graphical presentation. Oh, the Super indeed. NES had a lot of new graphic capabilities, and Konami just went whole hog using them here. Transparency effects. Oh, they were dying to get their hands on those, I bet. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, they they had a good time with it. And they, they made good use of Mode 7 with the swinging chandelier sequences. Oh my god, those were just amazing. To, just to sit there and for a moment just enjoy the chandeliers just swinging in the background. And you can almost hear them creaking in your head. And the foreground, you had to jump on some of those too. Oh yeah, the, it was such a good use of every part of the of the environment and the mechanics that was presented to them. I, I think this game really used everything that the Super Nintendo had to the best of the ability to make an amazing game. And again, this was a launch window title, so Konami just got it right off the bat. Yeah, they hit it out of the park. 
And let's not also not forget that one stage with the circular. <gasps> it was like a funhouse tunnel almost. Oh my god! Yeah, it was. It literally for a moment, I'm like, I I actually had to like pause the game i was playing at my friend steven's house because he had he had the super nintendo so we'd go over there and play it when our parents went to dinner like that's what we would do we would go to someone's house and just play the video games and just that one scene like we just all kind of sit there we're like uh are we sure this is still a castlevania game like this this seems weird <laughs> but it was just perfectly done and it was and it is still one of my favorite stages i died every time in that stage it was a, it was a given chrissy was going to die at least 15 times mm. but it was just so much fun that stage was so much fun to play through i should state just for i should say as a disclaimer i also like the water temple in ocarina of time so i've already been told i'm sadistic well wow that yeah. that, that is something <laughs> The last thing I want to mention about the Super NES iteration mm-hmm. is, you know how I briefly mentioned Nintendo sensors earlier? Yeah. Something snuck by them in this game. <laughs> Medusa is not just portrayed as the, the head floating back and forth. You get a full body Gorgon with a snake body and a lower half and a human upper half. And that upper half... Uh, is naked. Yeah, she's sneaky in this one. How did that get by Nintendo? Who knows? Maybe they were drunk when they got to that portion of it. Like, yeah, it's fine. No one's going to notice. And honestly, and every teenage kid, every preteen kid noticed. Indeed. But you know what? Oh, well, we all still turned out just fine anyways. Yes. So the music for Castlevania... Um, was composed by Masanori Adachi and Taro Kudo. Credited, you know, and the actual credited name for for um, Masanori was Masadori Odachi. It's an Adachi, o, double Odachi, and Taro. Eventually, the soundtrack was released on vinyl by Mondo on June 21st of 2017. They wanted to make the environment of Castlevania, Super Castlevania, more interactive. And they were really, really proud on, on the job they did. And I have to say they deserve to be extremely proud because it really was one of the better music done in the Castlevania series. And if, and if you have not picked up from, these, from any of our podcasts, music and sound effects, to me, a lot of time can make or break a game. They really absolutely. Can. So, and knowing the music from Castlevania, Super Castlevania, and if you have not heard the music from Super Castlevania, either because you're too young and you haven't played it yet, or it's been a while since you have played it, you can actually play the soundtrack on YouTube. Uh, just type in Super Castlevania for soundtrack, and there's a lot of different channels out there that will that are just the music. And if you're trying to write a scary story, this is the perfect music to have playing in the background as you write your story. Mm, Excellent. So, how did this game be received? Well, from pretty much it's been praised since it came out. So, um, pretty much Nintendo Power gave the game game four overall scores of 4.4, 4.4, 4.5 and 4.5 out of 5 and this is going in gra- graphics music controls and overall presentation 
1994, it was reviewed by Sandy Peterson and Dragons, Eye of the Monitor column, and it was given very favorable reviews there. Entertainment Weekly wrote, Vampire Noir, Dark Earthy Colors, Ominous and Almost um, Subliminal Sound Effects, and When Your Hero Swings from the Chandeliers or Dispatches Monsters with His Iron Frail, There's a Spine-Tingling Sense of Impending Doom. Now, that's a, those were stuff done at the time that Castlevania came out. Super Castlevania came out. Nowadays, in a retrospective of it, um, it is the 60th 6th best game made on a Nintendo system. It ranks 25 overall for Super Nintendo games. Um, it's 70 on their list of 100 best Nintendo games ever made. It's the perfected the classic formula due to its whip and less stiff gameplay. It praises the use of Mode 7, which is the graphics card. And in a review for the release to the U, um, the Wii U shop, unlike other 16 platform games of the era, the game has a mature and distinguished feel to it. And is probably the best of the original Castlevania installments. And a lot of people said it is one of the greatest video games of all time. So it scores very high and it is, and it deserves all the kudos it gets. It was just a very well, well-made game. So with that competition in terms of both that SNES game and the prior uh, NES game, mm-hmm. it's a little easy to see why Castlevania Chronicles on the PlayStation gets a bit overlooked also, considering it has to share that platform with Symphony of the Night. Oh, yeah. Which is another very well-made Castlevania game. But the basis for this was a X68000 game, which was released late in that platform's life, around 1993. And it also roughly doubles the length of the traditional Castlevania experience. But it incorporates elements from a wide variety of other Castlevania titles. It includes tree monsters from Haunted Mansion. <laughs> it includes set piece style uh, sequences that were inspired by Rondo of Blood and other uh, concurrent releases from that time period. And it is balls to the wall hard. Oh, not yeah. as hard as not hard in the sense of oh my god, this is the most unfair thing I've ever played, like Haunted Castle. But more like you need a level of precision that makes even the original Castlevania look tame. And also interesting with this game, too, is um, we can almost say Konami got a little bit more generous with their power-ups. There were hidden items worth points and also hidden pirate one-ups that were hidden throughout the game, so there was a bunch of extra lives. Um, If you ducked or stand in a certain portion of a level, you could get it. There were multiple loops after the game is completed. So you would play it through again and again and again. Previous Castlevania games had increased the difficulty for the game's second playthrough. This included an increased amount of damage taken from enemies in the earlier levels, as well as new enemy placements and attack patterns. So in other words, yeah, you could, if you ran through this game the first time around, and you thought you had every attack pattern and where certain enemies appear memorized, yeah, they kind of threw that out the window on you. However, it had six additional playthroughs, so you could play this thing up to play through to this thing up to six times on the same save file, becoming more difficult than the last. Now, this game came out here stateside 
about eight years later on the PlayStation in 2001, on October 8th in, in America. It hit Japan on May 24th, and it included, mercifully, an arranged mode which had an easy difficulty option, which is probably going to be the only way most people got through this game. Yes. I, I count myself among those. And, and it also, also rearranged the graphics some to a degree, which had the interesting side effect of turning Simon Belmont's hair pink. <laughs> That's kind of cool. The other thing also, too, is it also unla- unlocked an art gallery. Um, so there was artwork featured by uh, Ayami Kojima for Chronicles, and also it was um, artwork from Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Um, there was also an interview in there with the producer of the game, which is Koji Igarashi. Mm-hmm. So there was an interview with him. Then the time attack mode allowed you to race through any stage, complete with a time meter to beat their best time. So you would try to beat the stages as fast as you could, and it would keep ranking of your times. And speaking of time, we're starting to come up on it, so let's quickly uh, talk about Simon Belmont in Captain N. Oh, yes. So, if any of you have not seen this little-known Nintendo cartoon, it was called Captain N, and it was the fantasy of all gamers everywhere where a young guy named Kevin got sucked into the video game world and had to save it. Because how many of us really wanted to jump into our video games and actually run through them as the characters? As a kid. Now, as an adult? Heck no. Because <laughs> I know how, long, how often I die. Yeah. So, one of the characters that Kevin teams up with to help defend Videoland is he teams up with Mega Man, who starts everything with Mega. He teams up with Kid Icarus that ends everything with Icarus. And he teams up with Simon Belmont, who is not the Simon Belmont from the game. No. He looks more like Sid would look in Final Fantasy VII. Oh my god, yes! I was trying to figure out the other day who he looked like. You're right, he looks like Sid. <laughs> You're right, he does look and like Sid. And he sounds more like Dudley Do-Right. Except not quite as Do-Right. Simon has is an egotistical gentleman who wants to win over the heart of the princess sees himself as a rival to Captain N, which after the first couple episodes, you realize that there is no rivalry. He's not of the same level as the Chitichal hero. And he's very much in love with himself. Mm-hmm. Think Vanity Smurf as a human with a whip. Basically. Now, Castlevania itself gets a bit more uh, accurate treatment than some of the other games that appear in this. Oh, yes. You know, Dracula generally looks like Dracula. You can recognize the other monsters for what they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, out of all of the game worlds they show, Castlevania is the most accurate to the game setting. Mega Man World, not so much. Metroid, definitely not anything like what Metroid looks like in the game. Um, Hyrule's pretty close. Um, the few times we do the foray into Hyrule. Tetris, well, no one really knows what Tetris looks like, so they could have done anything with Tetris. And we'd be like, yeah, that's accurate. 
But I have to say the treatment of Castlevania as a setting and the characters of the game is very, I have to say, I, I give them, they did a very good job with that. Like I said. At least until they got to Alucard. Yeah, they made Alucard a teenager, and Alucard's not a teenager in any of the games. And Alucard isn't trying to get back with his dad in any of the games. No. Alucard's a very interesting character. He actually is one of my favorite characters in the Castlevania series. Dude can sleep. Hey, I think the footprints are getting fresher, Chrissy. Okay, so we must be getting close. Oscar! I'm going to go recover my blanket while we take this short break. Come here, Oscar! You can give it back to James now. the irregulars head over to www.patreon.com backslash fc3roc we're part of the media division of flower city comic-con based in rochester new york we're a non-profit group everything we make off of patreon and everything else we do goes right back into putting on our future conventions and other events from reserving the facilities to bringing in guests if you pledge any amount even a slim dollar you will receive improved access to my blog entries, where every Tuesday I go over current video game news and write retrospectives on old-school arcade games, all delivered conveniently to your inbox. There's plenty of other perks and rewards, and if you don't see what you're looking for, reach out to the crew. They'll be happy to work with you. Want to get a hold of us in particular? You can email Christy directly at k-r-i-s-s-i at fc3roc.org. And me at J-A-M-E-S at F-C-3-R-O-C dot org. At the moment, we're still working out most social media matters, but we are indeed on Facebook at Gaming Street Irregulars. Chrissy and I are fairly frequently there sharing news and things we find cool. And begging, I mean asking, for your questions and answers to be used in upcoming episodes. Yeah, asking. That's the ticket. We love hearing from you all, whether you have praise, constructive criticism, or just want to share something cool and gaming-related yourselves. Also, wherever you find FC3 on social media, we're usually not too far behind, so if you reach out to them with something for us, they'll get it to us shortly. Legally speaking, all music, sound effects, voice clips, and so on are the properties of their respective owners. We make no claim to them and have no intention of profiting off of them. Please don't sue us. We have nothing you'd want. Welcome back, folks. Today we have the release of a notable fighting game on the Neo Geo system. In 1994 was the release of Samurai Showdown 2. Now the Samurai Showdown series is something of a departure from the uh, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Fatal Fury style of game. In that not only are you using weapons... But any hit could be a death hit. Oof. Yeah. Oof. 
And that, I thought Dungeons and Dragons. I thought Ghosts and Goblins was bad. Yeah, it it definitely adds a layer of unpredictability. And for a time, this was considered the pinnacle of the Neo Geo's myriad fighting game franchises. You know, in 1994, King of Fighters was just getting started and had not come close to the artistic mastery later editions would entail. But it had a memorable cast of characters, uh, some anachronistic. Uh, we're looking at you, Gal Ford, American ninja from San Francisco in the 1600s. You can tell what's wrong with that statement. In many ways, and I can't even begin. But notably, this was the introduction of Pemi's favorite character in the franchise, Chom Chom. <laughs> an adorable little jungle cat girl with a boomerang. Aww, she's like now my favorite. I'll, I'll, I'll show you some pictures. I don't even need to see pictures. I'm just like, aww, she sounds so cute. <laughs> so, uh, a programming note. Next week, we're going to be taking a week off. Mm-hmm. Since uh, uh, Chrissy has a... Uh, a prior commitment. Yeah. It was an unexpected prior commitment, but it is a prior commitment. But don't worry, we will be back after that. Now that James has fully recovered his blanket in time for Halloween insanities. Who's a good little poultry pup? Don't <laughs> worry, guys. We'll be back soon. Yep. So until next time, on behalf of Chrissy Harding, game on. Bye, everyone. <laughs>